across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The writing is on the wall for the BBC today as Culture Secretary Nicky Morgan sets out the government's new stall on the licence fee system, reform of the management structure and examination of the way the BBC has changed from an impartial broadcaster to a political movement. This day has been long in coming, ladies and gentlemen. No longer is our national broadcaster the trusted destination for news in this country and I'm very sorry to have to say that. Programmes like Newsnight and Question Time have been beset by accusations of bias. The organisation itself is laying off hundreds of journalists, shutting down TV shows and cutting budgets in a desperate effort to look like money is being saved and targets are being met. But the truth is that the BBC is a bloated, overfunded and more unpopular organisation than it has ever been. A recent survey showed that around 75% of people think the licence fee should be done away with. But instead, what does the BBC do this year? They put it up by three quid. This morning, we'll speak to John Whittingdale, former Secretary of State, as Nicky Morgan suggested the BBC could end up just like blockbuster video if they're not careful 0344 499 1000 I don't think as I've said many times before that the BBC in its current form will survive the year coming up we'll also be finding out why the snowflakes at Cambridge University are so frightened of the armed forces and we'll get the latest in the predictable backlash from the lefty lawyers against Boris Johnson's plans to keep dangerous terrorists inside the prison rather than running about on the streets of our cities 0344 499 1000 also Donna Harvey joins us from California with an update on the Trump-Pelosi situation. The Speaker of the House petulantly ripped up the President's speech last night after he refused to shake hands with her. Marvellous, isn't it? That's what I call modern democracy in action. Meanwhile, the Democrats have just worked out who won the Iowa caucus, and nobody actually cares. You're listening to me and watching me live on YouTube because I think we've now fixed the feed right here on the fastest great radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Loads of, 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 of there, loads of things for us to do this morning. My apologies to you as I was trying to get all those words into one sentence. Uh, they came out strangely mangled. However, the good news is that we think we've got the YouTube live feed working, so you can join us on there. Uh, you can leave your um, notes for us. You can leave messages for us there. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio as well. We will be crossing live uh, when we can to Nikki Morgan's speech, where she's basically going to set out the government's kind of reform-based agenda for the BBC, because the BBC has been running for a very very, very long time in this country, as if it is what you might regard as the sort of secondary tier of government. You know, the people who work for the BBC think of themselves as the uh, stakeholders of society. They think of themselves as the elite uh, of the media world. They're very, very well paid. There are some people getting hundreds of thousands of pounds there that they would never get if they worked in any other organisation. In some cases, over a million pounds. And you know who I'm talking about, Gary Lineker. Let's talk to John Whittingdale, the former uh, Secretary of State uh, for Culture, Media and sports because he's a man who knows a thing or two about how the BBC is run and how it's been behaving over the years. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. This is quite a moment, I think, for the BBC, and I don't think it should be underestimated that, that somebody who's now doing the job that you once did is actually more or less going to set out a new plan for how the BBC should change and how it should be run from this moment on. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think there are there are serious issues to address for the BBC in that the broadcasting world is changing very rapidly 
um, there are, is now a huge choice available, which simply didn't exist before uh, in terms of streamed services like Amazon and Netflix and Apple and now Disney coming along. Um, and that BBC clearly needs to um, reconsider at this point what its place is, is and what uh, it needs changes it needs to make. Now, in terms of a license fee, I mean, all that's being announced today is a consultation about whether or not to decriminalise, which is something that we looked at before, but which we said should be kept under review. But I think that in the longer term, there is a case for asking whether or not the license fee is still an appropriate means of financing the BBC. But you can't change it until the technology allows you to. And at the moment, the BBC is broadcast on Freeview, and you can't have a voluntary system because you can't switch it off. But that will change in time. Yes, I think it will. And I mean, I'm, I'm surprised to, to, to hear you say that we haven't pr probably quite got the technology yet to do, because the technology exists pretty much now to do almost anything you want it to do, you know, in terms of the iPlayer. Well, the that problem, problem Mike, is, that, yeah, but the, it, you could do it on iPlayer. Yeah. But what you'd have to say is that everybody in the country could only get their BBC through the internet. Uh, and, of course, there are large parts of the country where either you can't get gigabit broadband yet or, even if you can, people choose not to do so. Um, it's all very well saying young people watch catch-up services and stream services online. Mm. They do. But there's still a big number of people who get their TV free-to-air broadcast on Freeview. And if you move to a subscription basis, you'd have to turn that off. And, obviously, no government could consider doing that. I think in 10 years' time, the situation may have changed, but we're not there yet. No, but also I think the way that the government is looking at this, and, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that, you know, they see much of the BBC as perhaps surplus to requirements, and there's clearly going to be a case made for parts of it to be hived off. When you see, for example, things like the, the, the BBC Worldwide sort of commercial arm, uh, and when you see um, so much of the, of, the, of the body of work they do on the internet, so many different radio stations, so many different local stations, I mean, there's an awful lot of things that the BBC which are being replicated now, which I think are kind of economically unfeasible. Um, well, I, I absolutely agree with you that I think that the BBC needs constantly to consider what it needs to be doing and what perhaps it no longer needs to concentrate on because it's being supplied uh, by others. Um, that, is, that is undoubtedly the case, particularly given the huge amount of change that has taken place. And we, they also need to bear in mind the impact that they have on commercial operators who have to live or die in the marketplace mm. and yet face competition from um, state-funded broadcasters. Uh, now, that, I do think, is a relevant issue, and, and it's something that we were keen to uh, bring up in the Charter, and it remains the case. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, just looking at the numbers on the on the TV licence itself and the decriminalisation of, of that, more than 121,000 people were convicted and sentenced for TV licence evasion in 2018. Now, all of those people have got criminal records, so presumably, if they were to decriminalise it, those criminal records would have to be expunged, wouldn't they? Um, well, if, if we move to decriminalisation, whether or not you actually expunge the record, I don't think it's, it's record. It's, on, it's not on the Criminal Records Bureau, but nonetheless, it is a criminal conviction, you're right. And I think the debate about whether or not it's appropriate for this particular charge to carry um, a criminal conviction if you fail to pay it, whereas lots of other charges which households have to bear don't. Yeah. I think it's right to look at that. There is an issue around whether or not it would lead to a significant increase in people failing to pay and the impact of that on the BBC. But you know, we said at the time that we last reviewed this that we understood that there is 
quite a strong feeling amongst many people about it. And that will have strengthened, uh, given that more and more people can now say, well, I never look at the BBC or mm. I don't listen to the BBC. Right. Because that's the other problem that, that, that I see in all of this. I mean, anecdotally, there's an awful lot of people that I speak to on this show who tell me that they haven't watched the BBC for years, they haven't bothered to pay the licence fee, and whenever anybody comes knocking on their door, uh, they just say, we don't watch it anymore, and they kind of go away. It's almost as though the BBC have kind of, are, are beginning to give up on chasing people. Well, I mean, I think the argument previously made, which was that everybody consumed the BBC in one form or another, either TV or on the radio or on uh, through the internet, mm. I mean, that, that I think is beginning to diminish. I mean, lots of particularly young people do only watch streamed content uh, or catch up and, and never venture near the BBC. Yeah. And at the moment, you still have to pay a licence fee for that. Um, but that is something which I'm sure will be taken into account during the consultation. I mean, I think it's right that it is kept under review. Yes. I mean, interestingly enough, I was talking to Stuart Jackson, uh, former Tory MP himself, who you probably know, who was telling me that there was a time a few years back when they had a bit of a battle with the BBC uh, as, as the government trying to get out of them, you know, some of the ex-gratia payments or payments that were being made to people sort of behind closed doors, as it were. Many of them uh, women who were being paid money to make up for the fact that they weren't paid equally and all of that. And in the end, he said the BBC had better lawyers, more expensive lawyers than we could afford, so we never got the information out of them. I was going to ask you, when you were uh, sitting there on that, on that culture committee, uh, heading it, were you? What was your impression of the BBC and, and and the sort of the people that you spoke to in it? Well, it's certainly true that the BBC in the past resisted open transparency. Um, we recommended a long time ago that uh, the individuals who were paid more than a certain amount, one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, should yeah. be named. The BBC resisted that fiercely. Did so throughout the uh, charter renewal process, and eventually were told by the government that they would have to do it. And, of course, it was that which then revealed the fact, which previously had not been obvious, that you had men and women doing exactly the same job and yet a vast differential in the amount that they were paid. Mm. And that is the, the, the seeming strange thing. And for, for an organisation that employs 22,000 people, and I know many people, as I'm sure you do, who've worked within the organisation, um, this announcement recently that they're going to lose 500 journalists from, from Broadcasting House and it's going to affect probably five live, perhaps more than anybody else. Um, everyone that I speak to about the way the BBC is run says, don't worry about it. What will happen is they'll go out the door uh, and they'll be told to come back and work as freelancers. And if you go in and work as a freelancer, you get told after a while, why don't you just take a staff job? And the gravy train kind of continues. So something's going to have to be done about that culture, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think there is some evidence for that. I mean, certainly we've had a, a, a several rounds of these announcements where the BBC have announced cutbacks or, or uh, redundancies. And yet, if you look at the overall total for the number working for BBC, it <laughs> hasn't gone down for long. No. It's crept back up again. Right. Um, but there is no doubt that the BBC is under financial pressure. Um, they are being required to pick up the cost of um, the over-75 TV licence yeah. exemption, which is, is quite substantial. And if decriminalisation is decided upon, then it may lead to some increase in the number of people not paying. Um, so I think the BBC need to have a, a think about what they are there to do um, and to look at what is now available, which wasn't before through uh, commercial services. And that is a, 
that is a debate which will take place in the run-up to the next charter renewal, but it's sensible we started that. Yeah, sure. And, I mean, as far as the new um, Director General is concerned, because obviously Tony Hall announced uh, just a little while ago that he was going to step down, um, will the government have a view on who should be the next uh, Director General? Will they be allowed to have a view on that? Well, it is not a government appointment. Um, and the independence no, I know. of the BBC is important. So it is an appointment uh, made by the BBC board. Will the government have a view? I'm sure they'll have a view. Um, and I suspect that they will you know, say, say to the um, I suppose, the well, shall I rephrase the question person? for you, John? What I'm, what I'm really saying is, will Dominic Cummings try and um, get, get his man in there, as it were, or his woman? Well, I mean, I think the government needs to be careful in that independence of the BBC is important. I mean, you cannot have governments dictating either the content uh, or the editorial control of um, a broadcaster as powerful as BBC. Media freedom is, mm. is something we prize in this country. But nevertheless, government's perfectly entitled to express a view about the editorial content, which um, they do on frequent occasions. And the BBC, I think, does need to take account of legitimate complaints. And certainly, well, I've expressed criticism in the past about um, the way in which some issues have been covered, particularly the referendum and the debate that took place afterwards. Yes, I think that's true. And I think we would we would be probably remiss not to point out that this perhaps a review of the BBC might not be being done with quite such relish if the BBC hadn't been so uh, biased during during the uh, the Brexit debate. Well, I mean, I think it's important to keep these two things separate. Um, yeah, it's uh, difficult, is, though, isn't it? There are serious questions to be asked about the way in which the BBC have covered pol politics recently, and mm. that's a matter for the BBC, but I think they do need to, to look at it because, plainly, they didn't properly reflect a, a very large body of opinion. And then there's a, the wider debate, which is a more long-term one, which is about public service broadcasting in this country, the BBC's place in it, and how you pay for it. Yeah, because at the moment, uh, it seems to me that there needs to, there needs to be a very open conversation uh, here about the difference between, you know, thinking that you know what people want to see um, and actually giving people what they want. Because I've been in the media for, for, for many a year and it's not simply about reflecting the views of the people that you're producing uh, content for. It's about doing things, that one, that they, they find interesting, that they find entertaining um, in terms of news, that they, that they find informative, and whether, it, whether it, if, if, if it doesn't have to be absolutely straight down the line, but if it isn't, you, have, you can't pretend that it's news, you know? No. Uh, on the other hand, I, mean, I do think that public service broadcasting does um, fill a gap uh, where perhaps the commercial stations would not necessarily provide content, and, and things that the BBC does like uh, hard news reporting, current affairs, investigative journalism, and things like education, arts coverage. That is the core of public service broadcasting, and, and that is not necessarily going to be supplied in the market. But what about something like Strictly? I mean, Strictly is not, for me, something the BBC should be doing. Well, I mean, I think that is, a, that, that is a, a, an argument which, I mean, I, when I was doing the Charter Review, said that the BBC programming should always be distinctive. Yeah. Um, it should look slightly different to that which you find on a commercial station. Right. And I think sometimes it is quite difficult to uh, justify, I'm not going to pick out individual programs. Yeah. But that, that, is, that was one of the things which we emphasised in the Charter, and I'm not sure the BBC necessarily is, is always distinctive enough. Yeah. No, I think that's the problem. And I think after this conversation uh, uh, that, that is launched today by, by Lady Morgan, 
begins. Uh, by the time we get to the end of it, I think all of those things will be will be discussed. Um, and and I, this is why I, I firmly believe that the BBC is going to have to change. Um, and this is the beginning of that of that process. I think that's true. I mean, the, the world is changing so fast. Yeah. And even when we did the Charter Renewal, which is only five years ago, since then you've had the launch of... Uh, services like Apple, like Amazon. You've already got Netflix, but it has grown massively. You've got another coming along soon in form of Disney. And that the BBC shouldn't just sort of continue to do what it's always done without paying any attention to what is now becoming available um, from the commercial sector. Well, exactly. So, I, mean, I, mean, I, I mean, even as we speak, John, uh, people are watching me on YouTube because we are now live-streaming the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I mean, I'm sorry for people who have to look at me, uh, but, you know, the point <laughs> is is that you could now see this radio station. Absolutely. Um, and and the, the, this is a technological advance which is going to continue, um, and I suspect particularly um, younger people who are growing up in a world in which they have this huge array of choice. I mean, mm. for people you know, who are familiar with TV broadcasting of 20 years ago, you know, you used to go and open your newspaper and look at the choice available at right. 8 o'clock that evening on four channels, and that was it. Mm. Now you can choose between a vast array, and you don't have to follow the timetable of the schedulers. No. You can watch it when you want. And that has changed the whole nature of broadcasting, and obviously all broadcasters need to take account of that. Absolutely right. And so as far as your role uh, coming up in this new parliament that we've got, we've got a new year, we've got a new decade, we've got, you know, a, a euro-free zone that we're now in. Um, it's quite exciting time, isn't it? Oh, it's very exciting time. I mean, as you know, I was a, a, a Brexit supporter, and yeah. I was... Uh, supported on the basis that I did think that there would be enormous opportunities for this country uh, if we were an independent, outward-looking sovereign nation. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we have finally achieved that, all right, we've still got another 11 months in transition, but we have left the European Union, I think does provide opportunities, and I'm very optimistic. And the fact also that the government has a majority. I've been in Parliament for... You know, 25 years plus now, mm. and this is the first time in my time in Parliament when my party has had a strong majority, and that makes it possible to do things which before we we have been prevented because we had this deadlock and the fear that you know one or two people could prevent the government because of the size of majority. All of that has now changed. It really is very exciting times. John, thanks very much indeed. John Whittingdale, uh, former Secretary of State uh, for Culture, Media and Sports, uh, back in the day when uh, the Tory party uh, were in the coalition government, uh, of course, with um, uh, Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats, which, of course, now uh, they would not need to do and would never, ever contemplate doing. Uh, let's talk about the BBC, though, because I think this is the beginning of the end of the BBC. Uh, Nicky Morgan speaking today, speaking this morning, about how the licence fee has to be reviewed. I suspect what she really means is... How how the licence fee has to be done away with and how the BBC has to find a different way of funding itself. And I'd love to hear your ideas on it. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Loads of ways of getting in touch with us, of course. You can tweet us at Talk Radio. You can tweet me at IROMG. You can, of course, find us on YouTube, uh, where we are currently streaming live. You can leave messages on there as well. Because, of course, there's so many ways uh, to keep informed and to be in touch, and none of them involve the BBC at all. Uh, here's one from George, who says, how about this? Knock, knock. Oh, uh, TV licence people. I'm very sorry, uh, but Mr. Mrs. So-and-so isn't at home at the moment. I'm looking after the place while he or she is out. You'll have to call back another time. Bye. Uh, and 
that's what a lot of people are obviously doing. Uh, Steve says, when the BBC does cutbacks, why can't they start at the top by offering the, them the same job but for less money instead of just getting rid of the people at the bottom? Well, this was one of the weird things about the way that they dealt with the Victoria Derbyshire show, uh, which they announced, uh, what, the week before last, that it was going to be axed because they were trying to save £80 million. And you say to yourself, well, you know, I'm no great uh, supporter particularly of the Victoria Derbyshire show, but why would they single out that particular show instead of loads of others that they could have cut? And why, for instance, uh, did they suddenly decide to sack 500 journalists from Broadcasting House, uh, which is mostly going to affect Radio 5 Live? It all seems to be being very randomly kind of slashed and burned without really any thought being given to it. Let's talk to Mary, who's in Hemel Hempstead. Hello, Mary. Morning, Michael. Morning, how are you? Okay. Good. Um, listen, why can't they compromise? Why has everything got to be all or nothing? If they, the, okay, the people over 75 losing free licences, why not just charge them half the amount? Yes. Well, and another thing that I find very strange with the BBC is, that, for example, look at the money they give to David Attenborough. Yeah who sits on a plane and flies here, there and everywhere, telling us that we mustn't fly. Yes. And are regarded as a saint. Right. And I very much object as well to children in need. Maybe a very good charity. Mm. But I don't want the BBC telling me what charity I'm supposed to give. No. Exactly right. And, I mean, it must cost them an absolute fortune out of part of the licence fee to put that whole thing on. Yeah, I agree. And I, I agree as well that the... The government should have a say in who's in charge. It shouldn't be like an open thing. They should have a gate after it all. It's a national broadcast. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, they can't, on the one hand, be pretending to be um, neutral, which they're clearly not, but at the same time, uh, take all the money that they take from this government and also from the taxpayer uh, but without giving us any representation. I think what they could do, and how about this for an idea, is they could actually put some form of public representation on the board of the BBC so that you and I have a voice as to what they do with the money. As long as it was genuine people and not to load of left-wingers like they have on Question Time. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, look at the state of Question Time. Look at the state of Newsnight. You know, these are programmes that used to be absolutely flagship BBC brilliance, right? And they're now a laughing stock. Oh, on Radio 4, look how that's gone down the pan. Yep. Yeah, absolutely right. It's really a shame because I don't take any pleasure at all, Barry, in, in saying and castigating the BBC, but it is not the organisation that it was even ten years ago. Oh, no, definitely not. We had quality programmes then. Yeah, we absolutely did. all these reality things yeah. are really quite pathetic, aren't they? They really are. I, put, I was uh, sort of surfing about last night, I put BBC Four on, right? They had this show uh, where Pete was called Still Life where a load of people all over the country were painting a naked man, or a naked man's buttocks, should I say. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I don't know what they're thinking. It wasn't very entertaining. Anyway, Mary, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw that last night, still life. The idea is, right, apparently all around the country, everybody draws, uh, and with this, this was supposed to be a bit like sort of Michelangelo's David. Uh, it wasn't anything like Michelangelo's David, by the way. Uh, and, of course... Uh, you then take a picture of what you've drawn, you send it in uh, to some BBC email address. I mean, what a waste of time. I mean, who cares? I mean, what, and by the way, I mean, as much as some of the stuff that put, gets put on BBC for television is quite good at the weekends, I'm not sure what it's for. Why do they need another channel? BBC Three was supposed to be killed off. It's still there. You can still get stuff on the iPlayer, which has never made it onto TV at all, but they're still commissioning work. They're still paying people to do stuff that nobody's asking for. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Mid-morning.
with Mike Graham. Talk Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham. Don't forget, by the way, uh, yesterday we filmed yet another one uh, of our Plank of the Week shows, which was tremendous, by the way. Uh, you will have to find, you can go find it on the uh, Twitter feed. There's a link to the YouTube show. Comes out every single Tuesday uh, and it's great gaining more and more uh, uh, viewers. So forget about the BBC altogether. You just watch Talk Radio TV because uh, we've got the off-air interview I did with Belinda De Lucy yesterday as well. Uh, there's so much material out there and we are live streaming today. Uh, we've managed to fix the YouTube feed, whatever was wrong with it has now been sorted, so you can watch us there as well as listening to us right here uh, on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Ishmael Lee South, director of the Salam Project, because uh, it looks as though the sort of, not campaign exactly, but the views that I've been professing here on Talk Radio uh, and that you have been agreeing with about Boris Johnson's want to keep these dangerous terrorists locked up and not allow them out, uh, as we saw happen on uh, Sunday, uh, where a man was shot dead by the police because he decided to stab a few people in Streatham High Road. Um, Ishmael, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me on the show. Not at all. Uh, it looks like almost three quarters of, of Britons in this country back uh, Boris Johnson's um, plan to try and make it much more difficult, uh, for certainly to do away with automatic uh, release, but also to make it much more difficult for some of these dangerous terrorists, if they are still dangerous, to be released at all. Yeah, that makes sense. But it, the sad reality is it, it took something like this for common sense to prevail. Yeah. Because there have been people who do the work that I do have been saying for years, over 10 years, that people who should be due for release, especially for extremism, they should be assessed by counter-extremism specialists, which with regards in the parole board and probation services. But sadly, this is not the case. Right. So you have people who don't have a clue, with all due respect, um, about um, extremism or radicalization, speaking to, pe speaking to people who have radicalized minds. Yeah. So just like, for example, rapists, there's a certain mentality with that. Same way you have murderers, um, murderers do that. With extremism is a certain mentality. Yes, exactly right. I mean, the parole board in general has been kind of, I would say, deficient in many areas, and this is just one of them in a way. So, so I suppose we shouldn't be that surprised. What I've been saying, uh, Ishmael, I don't know whether you agree with me on this, is that we should really start treating these um, convicted terrorists as different categories of, of prisoners, shouldn't we? We should be treating them, un, un, unlike, say, um, somebody who goes and robs a house or steals a car. You know, these guys are ideologically driven, so, so you need to treat them differently if you're going to get their behaviour to change. Definitely. Um, this is the sad reality of the people who are in charge of the policy making within the criminal justice system. They're being advised by people who don't have a clue, right behind their ears, armchair experts who don't have a clue. People who have been um, locked up or prosecuted for radicalization should be sent to a separate facility. Um, from what I understand, there's been four that have been built, but only one is in use. What's wrong with the other three? They're just standing there. People, because what it is, when radicals enter the prison, their mission is to, to spread their message. And that could be radicalization, Islamic radicalization, is caused by right radicalization, or also animal rights radicalization. I'm talking about all forms of radicalization. Yeah. So these people who are willing to kill for their cause, kill innocent women and children for their cause, they, that's a different mentality, and they should be locked up in a separate facility. Yes. Even offshore, if me, if, if me. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Ishmael, because there's an awful lot of people, and many of them come from the legal fraternity that I've been arguing with over the last few days since Sunday, um, who say, oh, well, you you know, we've got to be careful about people's human rights. You can't treat people differently. You know, everybody seems to be treated the same. I think that's nonsense, and I think that's why we've got to where we are. 
Definitely. And one of the reasons when, for example, I read the report that said how the person who'd done the Streatham incident, he was telling his um, cellmate that when he comes out, he's going to be killing certain people. So I wasn't there. But what I'm guessing is when it was reported, um, the people who work at the prison, they're more scared of being sued and losing their jobs, which I understand because got, they've got bills to pay, mortgages to pay just in doing their job, because the, the, the people, certain human rights lawyers, they make so much money from suing um, these organisations. Yeah. People are now scared of losing their job more than saving lives. Right, exactly. It seems remarkable, doesn't it? The danger, of course, though, Ishmael, as well, is what we saw uh, in the London Bridge attack, where you have a guy who was supposedly on the mend, who was supposedly de-radicalised, who was so convincing uh, to the people uh, who he ended up killing, uh, who had rescued him from, from the dire place that he was in. Um, they'd given him a laptop, they were helping him to get back to work, they were ex extremely, um, you know, lenient on him in terms of uh, allowing him to travel to London on his own to come to this conference, and then it turned out that it was all a sham. Big sham, because they understand, they know if they volunteer themselves for counter-extremism um, programmes, because followers of Anjum Chowdhury, because he's a trained lawyer himself, he teaches his followers yeah. what they can do to dodge the law to carry out their, their missions. So what it is, this shows that the people who, the counter-terrorism team or the counter-extremism team that was dealing with this young man, they were... Knew they weren't really experienced because anyone who could say, 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 okay, this guy was part of Al Mahajirun would know the mindset of Al Mahajirun. This is what they do. They they play the legal system to do for their cause. So, so you would favour some form of, um, I mean, considering that they would go through the criminal courts in the same way, found guilty of uh, whatever it was, like like our guy on Sunday, he was found guilty of of sort of, you know, possession of, 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 of information, you know, going on internet sites which were illegal, that kind of thing. You know, the problem, I suppose, is a guy like him, he gets three years, um, he's let out um, after half of that. Um, what process would he go through for people to work out whether or not he was dangerous? Because the police seemed to think he was dangerous enough to follow him around. Yeah, if the police had 20 officers following him, they knew how dangerous he was. Yeah. So when I'm hearing the thing, oh, we never knew, 20 police officers aren't following every um, extremist or radicalised um, suspect. Mm. So there's more that's there's more that's to the story that's not being told. Yeah. So what I would do personally, I would, first of all, the people who are advising the government on extremism and radicalization, I would get rid of them. So, for example, if they were managers of a football team in the Premiership, yeah. as an Arsenal supporter I know, and they're not doing <laughs> well, I would get rid of them. Yeah. them all. And then I would replace them with a task force, voluntarily, not paid by the state, of people who are grassroots administ grassroots practitioners who've been on the ground for a minimum of 15 years. Right. And also with people within the criminal justice system and working together to say people who are locked up and then get them assessed. I reckon they should be individually assessed by experienced practitioners, not wet behind the hairs, wet behind the yeah. hairs, um, armchair Googlers. And that's the sad reality. A lot of the people who are advising on counter-extremism are wet behind the hairs. People just press Google yeah. doing their research. And this is the point, because we've been doing this, uh, dealing with these people for a long time now, Ishmael. I mean, have you ever been asked to take part in any kind of government project? Yes, I got. I was asked around 10 years ago to be right. part of a government project. Um, and we won an award from the Home Office for our work. But what happened is, in 2011, 2012, many organisations, many great good organisations, just got their funding cut 
the, the question is not even money, not even just got their funding cut. They were ostracized by the counter-extremism mm. departments within the government because mm. they were going a particular way. Whereby, in my opinion, what they should have done was they should have had like a handover. Like you as a journalist and a broadcaster, there's a handover between you and the previous yeah. um, broadcaster. There was no handover. So the people who were controlling the narrative and the policy making between the years 2011 and 2016, first of all, weren't experienced. Two, there were a lot of hidden agendas. And three, they didn't have counter-extremism at their heart, there were other hidden agendas. Because if there were, they would know to have to infiltrate policies within the prison service, within the schools, within the youth services, within local authorities, and with so many departments that there's nothing. With all due respect, I met with the Department of the Government who say that they were counter-extremism, and I asked them about their policy with regards to people returning back from Syria, and they never had anything. This was before the Shemaima Begum came out. Right. Then when Shemaima Begum, then a few weeks later, Shemaima Begum's issue came out, and then now they're saying they've got a policy. So the sad reality is we're living in a time where the government has a reactionary policy to things in counter-extremism, where they should have policies set in place. Yes, exactly right. And I mean, I hope that Boris Johnson is not prevented from making this law because he is entitled to make new laws because he's the Prime Minister. The government has a majority of 80. You know, we already heard from certain uh, lawyers on the left, uh, Lib Dem peers, who want to say that it's illegal, that he can't retrospectively change this. But at the bottom line of all of this, Ishmael, is that the people of this country deserve uh, to expect the government to protect them from dangerous Definitely. individuals. And if you've got them inside already, why the hell would you let them out? Definitely. It, it just defies common sense. Yeah. It, and sometimes the sad reality is many people who are writing these policies, they don't have common sense. No. They just sit in a room all day, pressing Google, reading books. They don't have no life experiences. Trust right. me, I've met many of them. Yeah. And what about the communities where some of these um, uh, people are being radicalised? You know, what's going on there? Because we hear an awful lot uh, about how they're radicalised on the internet, uh, but yeah. some of the mosques that are still operating in this country, shall we say, are not necessarily helping them become radicalised, but they're not perhaps helping enough to stop it. I would say, first of all, the, on the online community, the internet community, the big tech companies they also need to be held to account. Boris Johnson said, uh, this is like a year before he became the Conservative leader, that there needs to be things done to the tech companies. And I believe, I agree with him on that policy, and I believe they should be fined. If we were to say to Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, if you have extremist content on your pages, you will be fined mm. 10 million pounds. Right. Let's see how much extremist material come off. That's the first thing. In the communities, there are different organizations who are doing work on the ground yeah. to help mosques help institutions that have elements of extremism radicalization to eradicate it. So I, I, I get calls from certain mosques and organizations. I get called, some of them are engaging with interfaith organizations. There have been many interfaith organizations who've been doing great work in engaging with mosques and helping them to eradicate these issues. Not just extremism radicalization, but knife crime, things and domestic violence and things like these, because these are all other issues and sometimes they're all interrelated. Yes. I mean, it's going to be a conversation we're going to have for a long time. Ishmael, great to talk to you. Uh, we must do this some more because I think we'll get you in the studio and get, get some proper uh, ideas together and go present them to some ministers. I think we, we together could actually help them to sort this situation out because, you know, I know what the people want. You know what needs to be done. Uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Ishmael, thanks very much indeed. Uh, director of the Salam Project. Coming up, uh, we're going to take some more of your calls. 0344 499 1000.
This is the kind of guy that needs to be talking to the government. We're not going to get uh, Ishmael in front of uh, Boris Johnson in Downing Street because that's what I think needs to happen because he agrees with me, as most of you do, uh, that these people need to be locked up for longer. They need to not be let out if they're still dangerous. They need to be interned somewhere outside of the prison system and possibly even on some kind of isolated Guantanamo Bay-style island. I don't see where the problem is in doing that. Unless, of course, you're some kind of lefty lawyer uh, who thinks, oh, no, we can't discuss that. We have to treat everybody the same. Well, no, we don't actually have to treat everybody the same. If people want to slit my throat, I don't want to treat that guy the same as the bloke who's making me a hamburger. Thanks very much indeed. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, one of the great things about leaving the European Union and getting the hell out of the Brexit situation is that we can go back to doing proper stories again and we can actually go back to putting on the front page of newspapers proper news. And on the front page of the Daily Mail today, exclusive, uh, it says, Panic as passenger finds loaded Glock pistol. Cameron's bodyguard leaves gun in Jet Lou. Now, it turns out that the British Airways scheduled service of London to New York, uh, David Cameron's on it, and of course, being a former Prime Minister, he gets protection, which is fine. Um, his security detail, however, uh, seems to be pretty dopey. And in order to get to the bottom of this, we thought, who could we ask? The world's greatest security expert, Will Geddes, is here. Will, welcome. And uh, I think this is the first time you and I have sat in this particular studio together. I think it is, Mike. And the first time since, uh, since you tried to poison me last week uh, at the Ivy Club. And it didn't work. It didn't, I'm You're back. too strong, mate. Yeah, too you strong. Through. You'll have to put a higher... Percentage of the potion into the drink next time. Why are you looking at me like that? Well, I'm thinking about what potion I can put in next time. Oh, I see. Okay. Anyway, so this is extraordinary, isn't it? This story. I mean, a lot of people have said, I didn't know you could even get a gun onto a plane. But I guess if you're a security detail for somebody mm -hmm. as famous as, uh, as David Cameron, you have special permission. Yeah, absolutely. If you're looking after royalty or diplomatic protection, then you're going to have those permissions. But, I mean, generally, you will be on the national airline. So, right. in this instance, obviously, it was British Airways. Right. OK. Because, I mean, I remember I'd had a, there was an incident. I was telling uh, Julie Hartley-Brew about this. I was coming back from New York one time on a Continental Airlines plane, and I got into a bit of an altercation with this guy, right? And unbeknownst to me, he was a US Marshal, because it was after 9-11. Mm. Yeah. And even though not every... Um, British airline had had marshals on, I think for a period of time, and it may well still be the case, all American airlines had these US marshals who were a kind of shadowy group because they weren't really law enforcement. They weren't really... Um, they were employed by the airlines, They were, but they weren't private security. It was difficult to know precisely what they were. And I was told later that they have sort of guns which can fire something which is inside of a plane which can knock you out but won't obviously pierce the plane. Yeah, which so it's a, is what, yeah, what, it's what a lower want. parabellum. So again, with uh, particular coating, which would ensure that obviously it wouldn't penetrate the actual plane right. hole, hull like the itself. Skin or whatever, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, and particularly if it's in close proximity. Right. I mean, those air marshals, they were interesting. I knew a few of the guys who used to do that, and you're absolutely right. In the states, on every single airline, mm. they would generally have air marshals. Right. Um, they would sort of mix and match them around. I, I don't think there are any more air marshals. They probably aren't. I mean, these I two guys were they were in plane clothes obviously, yeah. and they were just sitting as if they were passengers. Yeah. Um, but it all started because I went to um, uh, get a drink from the... the, the was it always on the flights you were on, Mike? Um, well, they were always on... Because, I mean, that might be telling us something. It could be something like that, yeah. I'd befriended this old granny who had gone to see her family. She was from Scotland because I was flying back to, to Edinburgh or Glasgow or something. And so we'd been chatting away and she was drinking Cointreau and I was drinking wine. I went to get another drink. And basically the... Um, 
the, the, the air stewardess was like, I'm sorry, sir, we can't give you any more to drink. And I'm like, this is for the granny. You know, she's had about five Quantras. She's fine. She's Scottish. You know, she'll be all right. And she's just she warming said, up then. I'm sorry, sir, Scottish. we can't give you any more alcohol. And I said, well, it's ridiculous. And as I was about to say something else, this guy who was standing there, yeah. who it turned out was the air marshal, uh, said, the lady said, you don't have any more. I said, what's it going to do with you? So he started having a row. Mm. Anyway, eventually it turned, he then tried to arrest me at some point right. uh, as we were heading back into the That's a little extreme. Yeah, it was. And, I, and, as, and, and as it happened, I, happened to, I, was, I knew where we were. I said, as it happens, mate, we are in British airspace. And I don't know who you think you are, but I don't think you've got any jurisdiction over me. And if you're bringing a gun into my city in Scotland, I hope you're going to go to the nearest police station and report the fact that you've got a gun. Otherwise, I'm going to do it for you. And he backed off. Well, I'm surprised he backed off. Yeah, it was quite an interesting evening. <laughs> I have to say. But, you know, these, but it was unclear how, they, how much power they actually had, those guys. Yeah, it was somewhat territorial. I mean, to be honest, if you're on a plane, it's much like if you're on a ship. It's the, the captain that obviously has primacy and control of yes. that environment. In terms of what happens in international airspace or international waters as opposed to custodial, I don't know whether it applies the same in aviation mm. as it does... Uh, on the sea, right. but I mean, maybe one of your callers will will clarify. They might that be able us. to do that, yeah. yeah. Because I was under the impression as well that their their main job was to kind of um, subdue any passengers. Obviously, it was yeah. relatively soon after nine eleven, so they were hoping to to make it impossible for anyone to get into the cockpit or to yeah. do anything stupid and all that. Um, but mostly, it was about kind of just keeping the peace, really, more than anything else, right? Yeah, I mean, it was more. Yeah, it was it was about interception. So you know, because obviously it was a breaching of the cockpit, which was the big. Concern, and as mm. we saw obviously on 9-11 and that was the concern in terms of what protections could be made but also bearing in mind that in that instance and particularly in the United uh, I can't remember the name the number but it was the, the infamous United flight oh yes that got I remember hijacked. 91 I think wasn't it something like that but it, yeah the, the big concern is members of the air crew actually being held to, you know, yeah, hostage right. and used as the collateral to the, the, the captain mm. and the co-pilot to actually open up the cockpit and right. enabling them access so was, right. that was the kind of level the platform from which the air marshals would obviously engage. Sure. Because, of course, before 9-11, I mean, it wouldn't be unusual for the, for the cockpit door to be open. I mean, quite often they would fly just with the door open and you could kind of look out and it was kind of cool. And if you had a kid, you could go and say... I was, I'm old you. enough to remember that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you'd be brought up into the cockpit right. whilst it was in mid-flight. I mean, I think they still do it a little bit when it's actually on the ground right. before it's actually taken off. But, right. uh, yeah, I'm old enough to remember my dad sort of embarrassing me and taking me up into the <laughs> cockpit. Right. And what about the fact that this gun actually had bullets in it, though? Because, I mean... It's one thing to say, all right, you can, you're obviously, uh, you know, with the prime, the former prime minister, uh, you're allowed to be his security detail, but they, they, they wouldn't be that comfortable if, he had, if knowing he had bullets in the gun, would they? Well, it kind of doesn't really serve much purpose without it, Mike, to be honest. Yeah, uh, but you can't fire the gun in the air, can you? Like I said, because no. you pierce the plane. Well, again, depending on what parabellum, I don't want to go yeah. into great detail here, but I mean, they would be permitted to take ammunition with them. Okay. And to have ammunition with the weapon, obviously, then fulfills mm. the purpose of actually carrying it rather than having it taken into the hold so for for example if i've been in territories where i've been providing armed protection and we've needed to use some sort of carrier to get us from a to b then you can check in or they will demand that you check in your your weapons obviously yeah. into the hold okay um and that will be your ammunition kept separately obviously to your weapon and then ultimately you get it back when right. you get to your destination but in the instances obviously diplomatic and royalty protection they can take it all with them right. but that has a, a greater level of responsibility so 
if you're using the loop, which you may be inclined to do on yeah. a transatlantic, um, then you've got to make sure that that's suitably secured in the same way as if you're getting out of your seat, whether right. that be in a plane or getting out of a car. Yeah, I mean, you would have thought that, um, and I, I know nothing about the holstering of guns, but I would have thought somebody like a close protection officer for, for Cameron would have like a shoulder holster, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, not it wouldn't necessarily, be something yeah. you necessarily want to take off to sit down. Well, no, but again, it's, it's convenience and sometimes it's personal preference. Mm. So, I mean, having a, a, a holster, which you actually have on your belt loop, always yeah. clipped in, depending on whether you're concealed Is it quite a small gun? Because I don't know how big a, a Glock, Glock is. No, a Glock's a decent size. Right. I mean, it's a reasonable size, you know, 9mm or even up to 45 Parabellum, but I think this was a 17L, so it was 9mm. Okay. Um, the, it's a good size handgun. I mean, so what, so, so size of your hand Yeah, it's, it's reasonably weighty. Yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely you would know if it was hanging off your belt loop. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, my feeling is, is that he obviously used the loop, he undid his belt, yeah. it was hanging off his belt loop, so he stuck it on the side. But I think what's the, what equally concerning, Mike, is he, obviously he didn't wash his hands because, you know, those little side yeah. bars where the, the basin is, it's I presume not massively he's in first, big. I, I assume he's in first class, which is probably slightly bigger toilet, Probably I guess. in business, I would yeah. have thought. Yeah, probably mm. in business. Okay. So, again, reasonable size. But having said that, it's not a massive counter. And mm. you put a 9 millimeter whether that be holstered or unholstered yeah. on the side there, you ain't going to miss that. No. I mean, it's like if you took your phone to the loo. Yeah. You're, you're not going to forget that, are you're you? You're not, are you? So if you're not going to forget your phone, how the hell do you forget your gun? Yeah. I mean, this guy's going to be out of a job, isn't he? I think it's probably likely. There was a female PPO, as far as I remember, who was actually on Blair's detail, who left her firearm actually in the restaurant loo of oh, a venue yeah. that they went to, and I, I don't think she's been seen since. No. Well, that's even worse in a way, isn't it? Because yeah. in a restaurant... Well, it's a public place. I mean, yeah. one, it's a public place, but also, two, somebody could go in and get the gun and come out firing it. Yeah. Like that scene from The Godfather. Well, you know, <laughs> tape it behind the system. I mean, the concern, <laughs> I mean, what was equally concerning was, let alone the firearm, Mike, was the fact that allegedly David Cameron's passport was also left with the firearm. Yeah. So, I mean, the amount of intelligence and information, you know, even in a kind of curious sense, that someone could have photographed the passport pages yeah. or, you know, and even the ID page, right. put that up on Twitter, put yeah. it up on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, how damaging would or that Or sold be? it to somebody. Well, even, exactly. Which yeah. you wouldn't even then know they'd done. But just posting it would yeah. be damaging enough. Right. So the fact that he did double bubble, left his Glock and the principal's passport on the side, cardinal sin. No, Mike. really. And would he be the only guy, do you think, covering a camera at that point, or would there be more than one? No, there'd probably be two, I okay. would have thought, on that particular flight. Right. But again, you know, it's one of those things when you're carrying a firearm. I mean, I've been in locations, Mike, where, I mean, like here in the UK, mm. you can't carry a firearm if you're a private security operator. Right. Um, you can if you're either SO15, SO19, a specialist firearms officer, or you're military, or you're royalty or diplomatic protection. But you can't as a private operator. Mm. But there have been occasions where I've been in some slightly sort of squirrely situations where instinctively, if I've come from an environment where I've been carrying a firearm, that you automatically kind of go to your hip yeah. to, to tap it and right. feel for it. In the same way as like when you leave the house in the morning yeah. and you think, have You've I got, got my wallet. house keys? Yeah. You know, or the car keys. Right. And you tap your pocket, exactly your wallet. So, Have it, I got my Glock 9mm? I yeah. like that. <laughs> I'd like to be able to say that as I go out the house. As I'm heading for the Jubilee line. <laughs> <laughs> now you're worrying me, Mike. Yeah. But, I mean, it is, it's funny, though, because, of course, you know, as you know, I spent a lot of time in America. And I always yeah. remember one of my first visits to Texas uh, where I got, uh, got into the high car at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And as we're driving into the city, and I'm singing the theme from Dallas to myself as I see the kind of the, the city rising in front of me, um, 
there's a guy in a pickup truck going past me and he's got about six rifles, you know, slotted behind the cabin where he's sitting. I then go to a bar later that night uh, where it says, please check your weapon uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the cloakroom. Yeah. And so you don't actually bring it into the bar. But the gun culture there is so different. Oh, totally and you've different. seen, of course, some of these demonstrations that have been done recently in some of the state houses where they're trying to cut back. And you've got guys walking into... Um, you know, in like in full military gear, yeah. walking into uh, a government building with an assault rifle. Open carry. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm kind of divided on that as to whether I, I, open I, carry is a great thing or not. I don't think, I mean, I, I don't understand. I think we as a culture don't understand yeah. why they feel the need to do that. You yeah. know, it's like if you want to shoot rabbits or something, that's one thing. But why do you need to walk down the street dressed like Rambo, uh, carrying a rifle? It's shouting in a quiet room. In the middle it? of a city. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's I not- mean, concealed carry, I get that, mm. and I think that's good because it doesn't cause alarm to other individuals, but the vast majority of firearm incidents where someone gets injured or killed is usually by some kind mm. of negligent discharge or an NT, right. as we call it. And it's some idiot who's basically yeah. a little too happy on the, the, the you know, the bang-bang yeah. finger. One final question. We have to be very quick here yeah, because sure. already under pressure. Do you think the police now have been given different instructions on the terrorists in terms of the two incidents we've just had, the one in Streatham and the one in London Bridge where they basically shot to kill them? No, that's been about since 9-11. So it was a system that was originally created, Mike, called Operation Kratos, which was designed with the Israelis who have a lot of experience with suicide bombers. And fundamentally it is, if someone shows evidence of any kind of IED, whether yeah. that be viable or not, you shoot to kill. Okay. Um, it's now called something else. I think it's Operation Clydesdale. Yeah. Uh, but it, th- this, this um, directive is still very much in force. So if anybody out on the street looks like they've got some sort of improvised explosive device, whether it be belt-worn, carried or whatever, right. and they pose a threat to the general public, the police will not hesitate. Okay. Will Gellies, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure, uh, we must have another lunch. Um, only this time, I won't poison you this, this time. This time I will win. Or I will uh, up the dosage. <laughs> let's put it out to vote on Twitter. Yeah, yes, let's see. Do you want me to be poisoned again? Uh, I'll miss every Thursday. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.